Hello, fantasy and adventure fans, and welcome to episode two of A.S. Thornton's Daughter of the Salt King. I'm Kayla, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on Daughter of the Salt King, Amel's future with the Muhami Ashik was snuffed like a flame when a man disguised as a suitor arrived and attempted to slay the Salt King. In the mayhem, Amel finds her father's wish-granting Jinni, Salim. Fearing the wrath of her father and not knowing where the Jinni's loyalty lies, Amel abandons the Jinni and her hopes of a future free from the Salt King. Who tried to kill the Salt King? And what will Amel do now? Chapter 5 After Mateen's attack, the settlement was secured and the remainder of the invaders were chased and killed, or captured and imprisoned. The entire perimeter of the palace was heavily guarded by the king's soldiers. The days that followed, I wavered between crippling grief that Asher was gone and nauseous worry that my father would learn I released his jinni. When no one summoned me to the Salt King those first few days, I began to hope the Jinni had been truthful after all. Either that or someone else was now master of the wish-granting legend. One morning, I went to see my mother. She lounged in the harem on a thickly stuffed mattress, studying a long roll of parchment. Her brow creased as she concentrated. Mama, I said suddenly needing her to treat me like a child again, despite the years of me demanding otherwise. When the wound was deep, Mama could fill it fastest. She sat up quickly, pushing the paper away. The loosely tied rope she was wearing fell off her shoulder, exposing her bright golden necklace. She covered herself and beckoned. Emel, she said my name as if she understood everything in the world. I went to her and curled into her lap. I am sorry, she whispered. I am sorry for so many things. She wrapped her arms around me and rocked me while I cried. Even ungroomed, the wives in the harem glowed beautifully from their well-kept life, and seeing them was another searing reminder of what I had lost in Asher. They approached me, murmuring and cooing sympathetically, some nursing babes of their own, Others, perhaps wishing their own child, would come in need of them, too. The women pressed their warm fingers to my back and neck as they consoled me. To many, I was also theirs. Since I was moved to the Ahira tent at thirteen years, more than the others, I frequented the harem. I was never close with Mama, always feeling as though she had a wall of secrets between us. Some days, she was soft embraces and warmth. Others, she was stiff shoulders and reticence. Still, I loved to see her because she loved to tell me stories, and I loved to listen. Sometimes, a secret would slip through her tales, and I would understand her just a little better. Mama told me legends of the jinn that were as capricious as Masira, of the hatif that murmured across the dunes and confused travelers, of the Scylla, 
who lured nomads and shifted her shape, of magic that sparked at the desert's edge. And some days, when we were alone, she tucked me under her arm and whispered tales that she made me promise not to share. The parts where she talked about her home, of walking through her settlement alone, the excitement of visiting the marketplace, of making friends with strangers and servants alike, teaching that kindness reaped fortune. And the most quietly, she'd tell me that I had to visit her home one day, that I had to promise her that I'd go and see it all, that I wouldn't let anything stop me. I promised and promised and promised, because I wanted to hear more. I understood later that those promises were like pipe smoke, weightless and gone with the slightest whisper of air. So, in my quiet way, the only way I could, I made my map. If I wouldn't visit by foot, I would visit in my dreams. When my tears slowed, when, finally, I felt the weight of my grief had lessened even just a little, Mama spoke. Let's go to the Rama, eh? She helped me stand, then dressed to leave with the most stunning abaya and veil only a king's wife could wear. No villager could afford to decorate their veil with shining golden da. We walked until we reached the wide, empty area surrounded by palace tents. Aside from the guards that stood at its entrance, it was empty. Most waited for prayers until the sun was at its highest, when the sand was hottest. Let us speak to the sons, she said as she led me to the center of the Rama. I knelt next to her and pressed my hands and brow into the sand. It was warm, but I did not wince. My prayers would be quiet that morning. We were silent for some time before, finally, Mama spoke. Your father will address the people today, she murmured beside me. I opened my eyes, seeing each tiny grain piled to make the modest dunes. Tell me what he says, she continued. I, I don't understand, I said, tripping on my words. I know that you leave. I know what you do. I tilted my head to look at her, my pulse quickening. What else did she know? Of the salt I stole? Of the Ginny? Don't look at me, she hissed in warning. I can't know we're speaking. I did as she said. Your father has told us nothing about the attack, and I want to know more. Can you go? I will. I swallowed hard, unsettled by what she knew. Who had told her? Who else would they tell? Bribing my way out of the palace was not as easy this time. The guards were on edge as much as the villagers, and they stood with more to lose should they face the king's wrath. And though they would admit it to none, Alim and Yael worried about me too. It's not safe for you, Alim said. But because of the jinni, I had deep pockets. There was no guard that could not be bribed, and after much persuasion and a heavy payment, I headed toward the market to find Firuz. The air crackled with nervous tension as I wound my way through the settlement. Passing villagers shot me uneasy glances before returning their eyes to the ground. People spoke quietly in tight circles, peering distrustfully around them. 
Nearly every face was covered, and the anonymity made me uneasy. The people had grown complacent living under the Salt King's rule. Desert tribes attacked each other often, eager to absorb other tribes and grow more powerful. It was the life man knew. It was how nomads survived. But that unpredictable and violent life was abandoned when the settlement and the Salt King's reputation grew to such a stature that none dared strike. Most who came to live in our settlement did so for stability and safety. Mateen and his soldiers ripped away that illusion and provided a stabbing reminder that nowhere was safe. We, too, were vulnerable. With the caravan gone and most of the villagers hiding away in their homes, the marketplace was a stark contrast to when I saw it last. It was eerily hushed with so few shops open, the lack of street performers and only a handful of people making purchases. Fidus sat with his arms propped behind him, indifferently watching the villagers pass. His basin of coconut juice was disconcertingly full. Fidu, I said as I ducked into the tent. Our eyes met, and he jumped to his knees. Thank Arab, he said too loudly in the hushed market. In two kneeling steps, he had his arms wrapped around me, his fists clutching the robes at my back. Shh, I pushed him away. His affectionate display would draw attention. No one is looking at us, he said, gesturing at the empty lane. He did not take his eyes from me as we sat on the blanket. He was so relieved I felt guilty I had not sent Yael to tell him I was okay. The guards are probably assembling for the address. I haven't seen one in some time. That's why you're here, I assume. Of course. Sons, Emel. I wanted to ask after you, but didn't want to cause trouble. His fingers tore at his hair. Were you there? I heard rumors. Yes, I saw enough. Despite his frown, his eyes sparked. Come on. Business has been slow anyway. Let's go talk. We carefully carried the basin home to his disappointed mother. We walked through the village until we arrived at the only area that seemed unaffected by the rising tension. Music floated through the air and met my ears as we approached, and when we turned down the lively byway, the sounds engulfed us completely. The Bay Tahira, the part of the settlement where people were paid to do the same thing I did for suitors. Besides the loud music, the garish fabric suspended from shoddy tent framework declared we were amongst the village whores. Scantily clad women and men draped themselves on stools and blankets scattered outside open tents, hoping for business. Some tents were closed, the sounds from within muffled by the music. Those who were unoccupied called seductively as we passed. I'll take two for the price of one. And some boy, I'll do whatever you ask. The first time Fidus brought me here, I was horrified. It was the last place I wanted to be found if I were discovered outside the palace. I had stomped away, but Firuz had talked me down. There are no people better at keeping secrets than those that live here. There is also no better place to talk. We won't be overheard. The loud music was a testament to that. I never asked him why he was so familiar with the Baitahira. I did not want to know. One private tent, until the twilight horn. Firuz said to a formidable woman who owned an aggregate of tents. He handed her five bronze knob. I felt a small prickle of guilt letting him pay for the tent when I had a brick's worth of salt attached to my hip, but I said nothing. 
Passing salt to palace guards was less of a risk because they were already paid in salt at times, but a servant woman paying in salt would lead to questions I was not ready to answer. We were directed to a small tent covered in a zigzagging red pattern on black fabric with its front tied open. The tents for hire were arranged so the entrances faced a small sandy passage. In the middle of the lane, two young men sat under a lean-to, playing loudly a rhythmic melody with their oud and darbuka. I followed Firuz inside. Atop the thin, filthy sheet that covered the sand, a tan scorpion reveled in the darkness. I backed away swiftly, bleeding like a goat. Firuz rushed in and chased it out. What is your problem? he asked, laughing. Stung when I was a child, I said, tucking my legs beneath me once I was seated. I pointed at my foot as if the red mark was still there. Once Firuz sealed the tent, the closed space grew unbearably hot. We unwrapped our faces and I untangled myself from my abaya until I was only in my fustan. Tell me what happened. Firuz took off his tunic and fanned himself with it. I told him of the afternoon. So you were going to marry him? Fidus said in disbelief. I nodded, feeling the pit open up in my stomach again. I wiped the sweat from my legs with my dress. He exhaled. I'm sorry. Tears welled in my eyes. It seemed that one day soon, I would be dried of all my tears. Fidus watched me closely. There will be someone else. He was the first in seven years. That invisible fist again tightened on my throat, and I fussed with my nails. So? Another could arrive tomorrow? I glared at him. It does no good to give me hope, when we both know that I'll be out on the streets in a year. The pit in my stomach yawned wider, filling with sorrow and fear until it brimmed over the edge. I've been thinking... I'll need a helper at the shop. When I didn't smile, he softened. You forget that with hope, we can be the most dangerous people here. Firuz took my hand and squeezed it. Tell me what happened after, he said, and I told him of the attack, of the swinging blades, the death and gore, of my father's escape, of Nasser's oblivion. That I remained by myself in the throne room, I did not mention the jinni, the secret too big to trouble him with. How'd you get home? I picked at a loose thread on my robe. I found my way back. It wasn't so easy for some. What do you mean? By the time the bells clanged, the streets were already swarmed with the altamaruch. The what? He sighed, exasperated by my ignorance. The rebels, the soldiers... It's what the villagers called them. It was like the Altamarug waited for something, and I assume it was like that in the palace. Of course, we didn't know what was happening with the king. I was in my shop when everything started. As more and more of those men arrived, lurking like jackals, I knew something was amiss. I went home. There were so many along the way. So many fools approached them. They seemed peaceful, really. They didn't attack unless a villager tried to fend them off. He shook his head and pressed his fingers to his eyes as though trying to rub away the memories. Eventually, more of their men came sprinting down the lanes, running away from the palace, hollering to flee. The king's guard chased them out. 
And I was worried about the few soldiers I saw. So many more got away, though I've heard there are still some hiding amongst us. I think they've got one in the prison. Ma said they are searching for something, but no one knows what. I know what they seek. You do? My father's throne. Matin tried to kill him. He shrugged. I suppose. Someone else said there's a spy among the king's men, so they'll surely be back. Spy? I thought of what my mother knew of my leaving. Was she informed by this spy? He shrugged. What else do you know about the Altamarur? Not much. They're suspected to be from the north since they arrived with the caravan, but we don't know where. My father said Matin was from far north. Do you think the desert's edge? Firuz looked at me skeptically. I continued. Do you believe the legends? The ones that talk of the magic there? Do you think they are true? Do you think Rafal is to be believed? I don't know. If there is magic, it doesn't seem to have found us here. Besides Rafal, I have not met a traveler nor trader from the edge that claims to have seen it. Asher had said the same. Rafal is a storyteller. I'm sure most of what he says is imagined. I peered around the tent, then leaned close into Firuz. Do you believe, I lowered my voice, Jin are real? Firuz turned to me, confused. It was not something settlers often spoke of. Many of the elders cautioned against mentioning jinn, as though the word itself might summon one. Why ask that? I hesitated. Since we're talking of dream tales, you know. I remember those stories, he smiled sadly. My favorites were the ones where they granted wishes. What would you wish for? I wouldn't trust one enough to wish, I lied, realizing how foolish I had been with the Ginny. I shouldn't even have spoken with him when I learned what he was. The salt grew heavy against my hip. Firuz frowned. That would be foolish. What would you have to lose? I stared at my feet, saying nothing. He went on. I would wish to be gone from here. Live somewhere I can be myself where I don't have to act in this absurd charade. Firuz tossed his scarf across the tent, suddenly enraged. I wanted to distract him from his ire. I'd wish for a bath to use every single day. Unlimited flatbread for Tavi? Rain? For Asher? To be free of my father's court? To be able to say no without consequence? This is childish, he spat. Imagining what we would wish for, living in some dream world, hoping for things that cannot be. Now where's that dangerous hope? I said softly. I saw a spark of a smile. We were silent for a long time, enduring the heat to bask in the luxury of privacy. Then the twilight horn sounded, so we left to watch our king address his people. Shoulders pressed together in the great tent that sat adjacent to the king's palace. We stood huddled around an impromptu, wobbling, wooden stage where my father would make his speech. The tent felt cool, despite the number of people that squeezed in to see their king, because atop the platform, a swarm of slaves tirelessly swung palm fronds to circulate the air. 
Around the perimeter of the stage, the king's soldiers stood side by side, blades poised to strike. We tunneled our way through the people to stand toward the back of the tent. An excited murmur spread through the crowd, and I knew Father had arrived. Garbed in extravagant maroon robes studded with rubies, he was followed closely by Nasser, who carried with him a tightly wound scroll, a jar of ink, and a large feathered quill. Nasser. How could a man who had arrived in our village unknown and alone climb the ranks of my father's sycophants so quickly? Three, maybe four years ago, he'd come to our settlement with only the clothes he wore and a pack of things he had on his camel's back. My father was impressed, so much so that this past spring, Nasser had become the Salt King's partner and counselor, his first wazir. Nasser's ruthlessness and wicked cunning, and his saccharine flattery, certainly were attractive to my father. But sons, where was that when Mateen arrived? If he had been paying any attention at all, he may have saved some of the guards. He may have saved Asher. Anger sparked in me as I watched him. Father climbed onto the stage, holding up his bulbous turban with its heavy jasper stone as he bent forward. Nasser scurried up behind him. The room was silent. All held their breath as they awaited the address from their king. His chest and belly jutted out, testing the strength of his shirt buttons, as he reveled in the praise. I watched him with disgust, remembering his sloppiness, his drunkenness when Matin attacked. There was no demonstration of his famed sword skills that afternoon, and the same anger infused by Nasser's incompetence burned in me again. Asher had died because they failed. My future had crumbled because of them. My loyal and beloved people, I hope Arab has seen to it that your days are warm and your olive trees generous, the king bellowed. His oily face shined like polished silver, and his wide smile showed his stained teeth glistening like wet stones. His people roared. Bile rose from the depths of my stomach, sour and acrid. Which god did these people cheer for? Arab or their king? I know you are afraid. I know that you have heard vile rumors of these people who challenged me. The Al-Tamarur. Villagers hissed and heckled at the mention of Matin and his soldiers. Never feared, the king continued. These people are nothing. He slammed his fist against an invisible barrier. They cheered. Nasser wrote furiously on an unfurled scroll, the feather spinning along the parchment. They are no threat. They were a small army and were squashed like a mosquito between the tips of my fingers. They are a worthless tribe and lunched their attack like children, unprepared and weak. My strong army, your army, chased them out of our settlement and killed every last one of them. The cowards who surrendered have been imprisoned. My father continued on about his strength and his soldiers' bravery. I grew tired of listening. There was little I was going to glean from his speech suffused with lies. My attention wandered to the people surrounding me as I searched for the supposed spies. Two dozen guards protected the king. 
None would be so foolish to attack him now. I scanned their faces, and my gaze snagged on a man, familiar yet strange. An uneasy tingling traveled down my neck. He stood close behind my father. I had not seen this guard before, yet something nagged at me, telling me I had. As if he felt my stare amongst the hundreds in the crowded room, the guard's eyes met mine, and the gentle tingling exploded into a fire that burned through me down to my toes. I gasped. His eyes were a flaming gold. His stare was unrelenting until, with the utmost subtlety, he gently dipped his head into a nod. Firuz heard my gasp. Are you okay? The jinni. Another who couldn't help, whom I couldn't trust, who failed to save Asher. My chest heaved with seething breath, my anger molten. I nodded to Firuz, but did not take my eyes from the masked soldier. He did not take his eyes away from me. At first glance, he did not appear remarkable. He was just a man. Gone was his golden skin and chestnut hair pulled back in golden bands. He was another one of King's men. Short, black hair, tanned skin, a pristine white uniform of the guard. But now that I knew who he was, I could almost see the radiating glow of his magic, the carved features of his deity-like face. I could even see the gold clasped to his wrists, seeping into his skin, peeking out beneath his sleeves. The speech blurred by. I heard the king's words but could not make sense of them. I stared at the jinni, heart pounding in my chest, anger clouding my vision and every single thought. I looked at the villagers who stood near. How did they miss this magical jinni standing beside their king? My eyes found his again. He still stared. Movement seemed impossible, his eyes pinning me down like a collector's moth. I trembled with fear, with fury. What was he doing to me? I wanted to scream at him, at all of them. But even more, I wanted to be free of them. The jinnie's mouth curved up to one side, a reluctant smile, almost a plea. No, I would not indulge. I tore my gaze from his and leaned into Firuz. I need to go. Wedging my way through the hollering and heaving people, I thought I could feel the jinnie's eyes on me and a warmth, like a hot wind, brushing against my neck. When I stepped out into the open air, two partridges with swirls of black on their wings fluttered away. The sun was sinking behind the settlement tents. Their shadows were long, cast onto the sand, sharp like the teeth of a fox. I ran rapidly back to my home the warm wind at my back urging me on. Chapter 6 You will get us all beaten to death! Sabra stormed at me when I walked into the tent. Conversations were silenced as my sisters turned to watch us. I... what? I stepped back from Sabra. Her fury was palpable. Your little escapades! She hissed the words, speaking quietly so none outside would hear. Your selfish adventures, going to the village, your forbidden life, while we are imprisoned in this infernal palace. She waved her hands wildly as she spoke. I don't understand. 
I looked from Sabra to my sisters who stared at us from around the room, waiting for someone to explain. Sabra could make the same choice to go into the settlement. She just never did. None of my sisters did. Tavi crept over to Sabra. Leave her. She didn't know. How could she? Do you hear how she defends you? She doesn't even realize what you're doing could get you killed, could get her killed. Sabra turned to Tavi. Sit down. This is between me and Emel. Tavi did not move. Patrolling guards checked on us this afternoon, Sabra said. They counted us. Imagine their surprise when they found one of us to be missing. Where were you? Oh, just out doing whatever it is you do out there. She fluttered her hand as though shaking off an insect. Counted us? I stammered. But what about girls at the Rama or Harem? My sisters came and went from our home frequently. It made no sense that they would suddenly expect all of us to be present in one afternoon. You were the only one missing. Clutching the clothes on my chest, I steadied my breath. I thought of my mother. Had she set me up? I shook my head. That was ridiculous. So someone indeed knew one of us was leaving. Someone that was not a friend. A traitorous guard? Alim? Yael? I would be punished. Maybe even banished. Or worse. We lied for you. Said you felt ill and were occupied. Sabra tipped her head in the direction of the pots. Had to save our own necks so we didn't get in trouble for not telling them you'd left. Didn't think of that, did you? She was right. I hadn't. They left without questions, Tavi said quietly. I exhaled, grateful for their lies and for the large amount of salt I had given the guards as a bribe. Had they been asked, both men, I was sure, firmly denied the escape of an Ahira. Sensing my distress, Tavi added, It's okay, Emel. There's no trouble. I'm sorry, I said quietly, and my eyes fell to the ground. I had been selfish. Sabra said, speaking more loudly now, You're caught up in your own world. You focus on only you. Father gives you extra attention, lavish clothes, more lenience. But what do you have to show for it? Sabra laughed. Nothing, just like me. You aren't special, Emel. I stared at Sabra, aghast at her words, at her callousness toward the death of Asher and my grief. The anger seemed to be years old, waiting for an opportunity to unleash. The Salt King was shameless, as he was in all things, in his favoritism. He surveyed his Ahiran periodically, deciding who was most beautiful, most worth his time. Those he chose would receive extra attention when being courted by a suitor, by gifts of gold-spun costumes and finely crafted chains and jewels. Sisters were always jealous of the chosen Ahira, but the feelings vanished the moment the girl was wed. I had been chosen quite young as a favorite of the king. My attendants said it was because of my beauty, the high bones of my cheeks, my slender neck, my long hair, dark as night, my strong frame that carried large breasts and wide hips. The only evidence I was of the king's blood was the charcoal black of my eyes. I had what men wanted to see, 
what they wanted to touch and hold. My father was fascinated by me, touching me, fingering my hair when I was near him during courtings. Like the Ginny's vessel, I was one of his favorite baubles. It took years for him to become discouraged by the lack of proposals I received. Even then, his obsession was apparent despite the heavy veil of frustration he pulled between us. As the years passed, my sister's jealousy toward me faded. I possessed nothing worth envying. Evidently, Sabra's did not. Our relationship frayed as we got older, and the time that remained for Sabra dwindled to months. I assumed it was her fear of being banished, cast out by her family. I remember watching the same tension snapping between the older Ahiran those years ago when another was cast out. I set my jaw and watched Sabra. I had apologized. There was nothing left for me to say. I won't risk my life lying for you, she said. Don't leave the palace again. If not for your sister's sake, then for your own. If you do, I'll tell father. She turned from me. The girls in the room gasped, and I stared at her retreating back, horrified. All the anger I had felt toward Nasser, the salt king, the jinni, paled compared to what I felt for my sister, for someone I was supposed to be able to trust. It was cruel. Walking to my bed, my shadow jerked wildly from the torch fire. I thought of Sabra's threat and whether or not it was to be believed. I began planning ways I could sneak out without her realizing. I dropped my veil and robe onto my mat and unfastened the sack full of salt from the leather belt around my dress. I dug a small hole in the sand into which I furiously stuffed the bag before sliding my mat over it. Rahima came to me, the stack of cards in one hand and the bowl of cowries and glass beads in her other. I picked up one of the beads, milky blue on the outside, a chip in its surface revealing it to be clear blue on the inside. Slave beads, we called them. As if slavery was something beneath us. As if it were something separate. I don't want to play, I said, setting down the bead. Okay, Rahima said. She sat beside me and lowered her voice. You should know that the guards were just patrolling. Seemed like maybe father has them on high alert since... She paused, chewing the words she did not want to say. Unlike Sabra, she did not want to remind me of what happened, of what I lost that day. They didn't seem to care one way or the other that you were gone. I don't think anyone knows where you were. Clasping her shoulder, I brought her to me and hugged her gratefully. She was wrong, though. People knew. Every guard I'd bribed, every hidden servant who peered through splits and tents. My mother. Who else? It doesn't change Sabra's threat. She wouldn't. She's just angry. She picked up my servant's clothes, shaking out the sand before folding them, and hid them away at the bottom of our basket. There was no reason for an Ahira to be in possession of clothes like that. I don't want to find out if you're right. Exhaustion consumed me. I lay on my mat and pulled the thin blanket over my head to hide in its shadows. But the heat poured in, and sweat rolled off of me in large drops. I threw the blanket aside. I was trapped. I had no hope of running and nowhere to run.
Mama was distracted when I told her of the address. Did you see anything strange? She said, interrupting my summary of the king's speech. I shook my head, thinking of the Jenny. What do you mean? Anyone out of the ordinary? I watched her, picking at her fingers just as I did when nervous. Then it hit me. Of course, she wanted to know about the Altamarur. No, I saw no one. I pointed to the stacks of parchment, small looping handwriting scribbled across the pages. What are you reading, a letter? One looked to be signed by someone. These? She picked them up and folded them. Just stories. Reading letters was rare in the palace. The wives had none to correspond with, but reading for pleasure was equally baffling. I reached for one. Can I see? My reading was not strong and I had never read a story, but it seemed a good distraction. My mother stood, tucking the parchment to her chest. Oh, no, she said, a tremor in her voice. Your father would frown upon it. They're only for children, he'd say. I should get rid of them. They're so silly. She spoke in a rush, smiled weakly, then reached the sheets up to the flames of a nearby torch. The corners caught on fire, and she dropped them onto the sand and watched them burn. The frankincense in the room was swallowed by the smell of charred meat. With Sabra's threat at my heels, I did not stray from the palace, and each day that passed was a painful reminder of what I had lost in Asher. It was the life I was supposed to leave behind. I was never supposed to be in these tents again. Some days I would cry. Sons, how often I cried. Others, I would sit and stare at the tent wall, watching to see if the fabric moved. If there was a wind outside, I could not feel. I invoked the names of Arab and Wahir when gambling away beads and card games, gossiped of neighbors whenever tidbits of information slipped from our attendants, wove tapestries and blankets for palace trade. In a moment of recklessness, I found the young girl with the marked face and showed her my map. I made her promise me that one day she would see the world. She promised with wide, disbelieving eyes. Then her father called to her and she ran from me into his arms. He lifted her from the ground and kissed the mark on her face, it seemed one hundred times, while she cackled and pushed away from him. He nodded to me before he took her inside their home. I heard her tell him about the world, and in his silence, I heard him listen. The salt sat unused beneath my mat. As the moon waxed and waned again, the pain of Asher was dulled, leaving me in a haze of apathy. My sisters tried to help, telling vulgar jokes and pantomiming nights with suitors with ridiculous flair. Sometimes it did help, but just for the moment. Sabra and I would sit across the room from each other, sharing our hatred for the world we lived in, but never daring to let that be something that brought us together. I would not be the first to yield. When servants chattered about the caravans that came and went, I found myself daydreaming of the things I would wish for in a world where the jinnee could be trusted, where he belonged to me and not my father. Always, it was freedom. Summer was fading to autumn when still there was no sign of the Altamarur. The king permitted suitors to court again. 
Some Ahiran came back with hearts heavier than when they left, some with bruises, others with news of an impending engagement. I was not again requested by a prince, but it was not for a lack of trying. I saw Basima at the Rama. She said the Mohammi may request me again tonight, Fatima said proudly. Rings of red bruises wrapped her forearms, a swelling in the hollow of her cheek. My sisters who sat weaving with us looked up from the tapestry, feigning joy. I stared down at the strands in front of me, pretending to focus on my task. Perhaps a wedding, then. The false excitement in Kadri's voice provided comfort to none. I hope so, Fatima agreed. I've prayed to Arab. The skin on her brow shone where the sand had burned it. I doused Masira's flames with my tea. This was the way of the Ahiran, to eagerly embrace the life that was given to us, hoping enthusiasm would transform into happiness. Sometimes the men were too rough with us, sometimes intentionally violent. It was our burden as king's daughters, so we must endure it. Life as a thrashed wife was more honorable than life as a cast-off, after all. Fatima looked around the room conspiratorially before leaning in closely and whispering, I let him kiss me, down there. He wanted to? The younger girl's eyes were wide with indecent curiosity. Fatima nodded and smiled, one eyebrow arching high. Next time he's down there, why don't you give him a heel to the head? I murmured. Fatima's lips corked, and so quietly I almost did not hear the words, she said, I can promise you that if I become his wife, he'll get more than that. When we met the next Muhammi, I laughed with him, fluttering my eyelashes. When he was across the long room mingling with my sisters, I smiled seductively. Emel, come to me, my father said. He had watched me from his deep, cushioned lounge. The midday sunlight soaked through the white fabric, heating the air despite the servants who fanned the room. I went to him, stepping around the slaves holding trays of flaky date pastries for only my father and his guests. I eyed the food. Sit down, he said, patting his knee. My stomach twisted. I did not want the suitor to see me as a child, destroying his visions of my legs around his waist in bed. On my father's knee, I could smell the candied, bitter aroma of liquor and his unbathed body. His nostrils whistled in my ear with each breath in. The hot air touched my shoulder each breath out. From the corner of my eye, I could see the golden rings fastened to his nose, gleaming. The king's fingers trailed up and down my spine. You are beautiful tonight. I stiffened. Thank you, my king. Ah, Emil, king? I am your father. He snapped his fingers at one of the slaves holding a silver tray. The man came over dutifully, carrying a bowl of small red jewels. I had never seen anything like them. I stared as the king took one of the shining gems and placed it onto his tongue. He bit into it, and tiny drops of liquid hit my cheek. I could smell its sweetness and was baffled. What magic was this? 
He reached for another and held it before me. I reached for it. Not for you, my greedy minx. He placed it into his mouth. My cheeks grew hot. He waved the slave and bowl of treasure away. I reached up to my cheek and wiped at the drops. On my fingertip was liquid the color of blood. Mmm. His groan rumbled through me. An exhibition just for me. A reminder of his power. It was always a show with him. The spark of shame that heated my face ignited into anger. I thought of the words my mother, my attendants, told us. You are lucky to be the daughter of the king. Show him your gratitude by being graceful, subservient. Still, the shame and anger lingered. Come, Kadir, the king called to the suitor, and meet my beautiful daughter. His fingertips pressed into my shoulder, my hip, my back. Why did I have to feel grateful when his sordid paws touched me like a prize he wanted to pawn? There was so little I could control in my life. Why let someone else dictate how I felt about my father and his court? If I could not choose my love, at least I could choose my enmity. I needed to get away from him and his wicked palace. I looked up to Kadir as he crossed the room. I attempted to smile to show Kadir why he should choose me. Take me from here. My face cramped as I held my features in an eager expression, despite the hand that now rested on my thigh. My father discussed my prowess both intellectually and physically, and my role in Kadir's home should he marry me. On and on, this and that, talking of me like I was a goat to be raised on new land. Kadir listened more than he spoke, his narrowed eyes betraying his unease with my father's intimacy. My father's hand traveled to my inner thigh. It was heavy and hot. I held my breath. I imagined myself to be a stone on his lap, unfeeling, uncaring. My eyes dropped to his hand, and I glimpsed gold and glass peeking from behind my father's robes. The Ginny's vessel. Kadir's eyes darted to my father's hand, too closely linked to his daughter, then to me, then back to my father. Almost imperceptibly, he leaned back, the corners of his lips tugging downward. I turned away. Embarrassment, shame, and fury striking my temples like a hammer. I began to stand, to move away from my father, to get away from the monster, to save my pride and show Kadir that I did not want it either. But my father's hand shoved me back onto his lap. My dove, where are you going? Stay. His words held an icy edge that terrified me. Looking down, I saw again the glass vessel. Only this time I noticed it was empty. Was the Ginny there in that room? Quickly I searched for him. Perhaps Firuz was right. What did I have to lose? The Ginny could help me get out. I didn't want to wait until my father decided I was worthless. Maybe I could leave now. My father's grip was tied on my leg now. I was shackled to him, under his control. Just like his slaves. Just like my sisters. Just like the Ginny. When I met the Ginny after Mateen's attack, I had been too distressed by everything that had happened that I didn't see the Ginny. How he had asked permission. 
had let me leave when I asked. What if he wasn't loyal to the Salt King? He had not told my father of our encounter. Could he be trusted after all? Maybe he was another unwilling slave and I had let his offer slip through my grasp. I wanted to throw my head into my hands and kick my feet like an outraged child. What had I done? Kadir and my father continued to talk, the Mohammed barely hiding his revulsion in his strained words. I did not pay attention to their conversation. I wanted to see the jinni again, perhaps only to test his word. Did he truly intend no harm? Could he really grant wishes? Through him could I be free? But there was also a part of me that wanted to see if he was real. Had it all been a horrible dream? Go, the king said as he pushed me off his lap, his nails pinching my skin. Speak with your Mohammed. Kadir stiffly guided me to an unoccupied part of the room. You are the most appealing woman here, he said, his manner affected, just as Asher's had been when we met for the first time. Kadir's eyes raked me from top to bottom, seeing me as an Ahira now that I was not sitting atop my father's lap. I looked behind him at the guards placed around the room. Hoping that the jinni lurked nearby, I peered at each face closely, but there were none like him, no unearthly shimmer in the air. Am I displeasing? Kadir said, his voice sharp. A change in tone snapped my attention back to him. No, it is quite the opposite, I said in a rush, bowing forward. You unsettle me by your presence. Your prosperous reputation precedes you. I am intimidated. He seemed appeased, so we talked of frivolous things. Kadir found any excuse to lay his hands upon me, caressing my neck, touching the jewels on my bodice, the bangles on my wrists, feigning to brush a mosquito from my thigh or sand from my cheek. Emel, he said, taking my hand. You fascinate me. You are generous with your flattery, I demurred. I confess, I am the one who is enchanted. Let us go to your father. He began to lead me toward the king. No, I did not want to be chosen that day to see the Mohammed that night. I wished desperately to see the jinni instead. If he could offer me another way out, one that didn't bind me in marriage. At once, Kadir dropped my hand and walked toward Rahima. I stood suddenly alone, nonplussed as I peered at my sisters, a few matching with expressions I am sure mirrored mine. What had just happened? My father shot me a violent glance when Kadir informed him that he was choosing Rahima in my stead. I fell in line behind the rest of my sisters as we were escorted back home, still trying to understand Kadir's sudden decision when I felt a hot wind rush at my back. Were you looking for me? A quiet, deep voice rumbled behind me. I jolted and whipped around. The jinni stood behind me, undisguised and holy himself. He towered above me, the almost golden skin of his chest gleaming in the filtered sun. His eyes twinkled with curiosity. I turned back to my sisters, eager to see what they thought of the jinni, who now stood amongst us. None of them had turned. 
they continued to walk away. What? I pointed to my sister's retreating backs. They won't notice me, not if I don't want them to. There was a thinly veiled conceit. I looked back to them. One by one, they went into another room until we were the only two standing in the hall. What are you doing here? I asked. They won't hear you. You don't have to whisper. He grasped the golden cuff on his wrist, his fingers absently moving over the place where the metal seemed to melt into his hand. I have come for you, unless I am mistaken you were looking for me. How did you know? I thought back to the courting. Had it been so obvious? When I am released, a vague connection is formed between me and my master. I can feel the tenor of all your desires, but I feel the most strongly when you desire my presence. It is how the jinnee knows to come to his master, should they be apart. I widened my eyes, immediately uncomfortable. What else did he sense? I am not privy to your thoughts, Emel. I do not know what you are thinking. I squinted at him, not sure if I trusted his answer. What I sense from you is indistinct at best. This afternoon I felt you wish for me. You don't know what I'm thinking? No. I am here because you sought me. Have you a wish? I do. I knew what I wanted, and perhaps he did too, but first I had to make sure of one thing. You said I do not have to fear you, that you are to be trusted. He nodded. I wish for you to prove it. The jinnee cocked his head to the side. A smile slowly stretched across his face. Will that be your first wish, then? I shifted. Perhaps my wish was foolish. Was he laughing at me? But I thought of my father and all the men who took advantage of a sparkling, submissive Ahira. I thought of the tales that told of guileful jinn. I needed to know that Salim would not be the same. It is my wish. Standing before me was the same man I had seen two moons ago, but in that moment, the jinnee looked different. Eyes alight with flaming gold, shoulders back and chest up. Instead of defeated, he looked hopeful. Then, the ground slipped from beneath my feet. Chapter 7 The unmoving, stifling heat of the palace tents was gone. The air felt open and a breeze touched my face. It was hot, but it did not cling like it did under the blanketed tents. The strained sunlight I had been walking under moments before had darkened. I was in a shaded place. I opened my eyes. In the distance was a cluster of browns, reds, and blues distorted by the waves of heat rising up from the ground. It was isolated but massive, spilling into the surrounding expanse of sand as if it consumed it. Bright, white peaks emerged from the heart of the colors, and I understood. I stared at my settlement. So then, where was I? Several dozen tightly huddled trees, some palms, others broad and leafy, collided above me. 
The coos and chirps of birds streamed from branches that cast welcome shadows over a small sandy area. At the center was a shining blue pool. The sand seeping into my slippers was cool. You are smart, the Jinny said. I turned to him. To ask me to reveal my intentions, to prove I am someone you can trust. It is a clever wish. You see, I am but a conduit for Masira's will. I do not have control over the outcome of a desire. She will fulfill wishes however she sees fit, so long as it honors the wish truthfully. So he was not a god himself, but he was near to one. Watching the light glint off of the water, I thought of what it meant to be speaking with someone so close to the goddess. Did I want that closeness to a deity? It seemed it could bring great fortune or terrible destruction. He continued, She is fickle. I knew this, so I did not understand why he was explaining it to me. If my intention were to hurt you or to reveal what you've done to the king, you would see that now, even if I did not want it to be shown. Masira will always honor a wish, but the more specific you are, the more clear your intention, the less creative she can be. Is it magic what you do? Some call it magic, but it is the providence of the goddess. If she wills it, then how can it be otherwise? His words came out as though he'd been waiting to tell them to me. I looked unhurriedly at his large carved frame as he spoke. The Ginny's skin seemed unbelievably to shine even brighter in the shade of the trees. My eyes lingered on his broad chest, narrow hips, and finally, his face. His eyes were set under a heavy brow that cast deep shadows. His nose was long and straight, and led my eyes down to a wide mouth that was almost hidden within his beard. His sharp cheekbones reminded me of the royal men and women I saw woven in the tapestries hanging in my father's halls. He was beautiful in a divine sort of way, and upon realizing it, I felt absurdly self-conscious as one does when they hope they are, or fear they are not, regarded in kind. Heat flooded my cheeks and I ran my fingers through the leafy bushes as I examined them. You have brought me to my father's oasis. I have. Why? It is the safest place there is, without straying too far from your home. The nervous flutter that started when the Ginny had whisked me from the hallway now frenzied against my chest as I realized I really was away from the settlement. For the first time in my life. I briefly wondered if a guard standing at the perimeter would see my shadow amongst the trees, but I knew he could not. No one could see me. No one could hear me. None but the Ginny. It was an even greater freedom than being out in the village. I felt giddy and a childlike smile spread across my face. I wanted to run around and jump from stone to stone and dive into the cool water, to frolic with the untethered feeling of being away from my home. But I also wanted to sit and comb through all of my questions that had tangled together since I'd first met the Ginny. So I can trust you, really? I asked still not looking at him. My word is Masira's will, my promises unbreakable. 
I raised an eyebrow and met his gaze. Well, then I wish for one thousand wishes. The corner of his lip lifted. Granted. A pleasant tingle crawled down my spine. Did my father find you here? He did. I nodded, unsurprised. So those rumors were true. That the oasis was a magical place was not wrong. I looked around the refuge, wondering where my father stood when he came upon the glass vessel filled with golden smoke. How did he feel when the genie told him he would grant his desires? And you are the reason that he amassed so much wealth. I am. He watched me as I spun, looking at the trees and sand and water and rocks. He added, The reason the dunes don't swallow the settlement, the reason no challenger can defeat your father. Yes, that all made sense now. I waited to hear what else he had done, but he did not continue. Do others know about you? The Ginny considered the question, then said, I am sure they do not. Your father is very secretive and very proud of his reputation. If people knew he had a Ginny, it would destroy the illusion. It would also bring great conflict. People easily kill to possess something that grants wishes, something that promises fortune. I thought of Mateen and his soldiers. They killed without that knowledge. I could not imagine what would happen should the desert know of the jinni. But you can't grant every wish, I said, remembering Asher. A shadow crossed his face. No, I cannot. He did not elaborate, and I did not want to unbury the memories. What did my father wish for? to become what he is. Why? Do you plan to wish for the same? He sat on a smooth stone and did not wait for me to answer. Your father is wise. Instead of asking to be the most powerful man or the wealthiest man, both of which can be interpreted as Masira sees fit, he wished to possess that which would make him the most formidable king in the desert. So she gave him salt. The jinnee nodded. It changed everything. Moving toward the pool at the heart of the trees, I thought of gods and jinn and my father's salt. I knelt and dipped my fingers in the pool. The water was cool and I longed to bathe in it. I imagined lying in the water, my ivory clothes billowing up toward the surface around me, returning home soaking wet. I spun, Sons, I have to go back. Take me back. In my awe at being in the oasis, I had forgotten about home. Sabra, she will see me missing. She will tell my father. I yelled the words at him, my heart slamming against my ribs. My fingers were clasped to his arms, attempting to drag him back to the village. The jinni raised his hands, pulling his arms from my grasp. It is okay. Time does not move forward there. They won't know. They're frozen in their steps. Confused, I looked at the trees above me, their quivering leaves, the ripples in the water traveling to the opposite shore. Time is stilled there? I pointed to the village behind me. Just there. Here, he said and indicated around us. Time will seem to move forward. But to the world... 
We are the only two alive in the endless span between the beats of a heart. That gave me pause. I took deep breaths, and my pulse slowed. I sat by the pool and stared into the bright blue water. I saw the Ginny's reflection on its surface. His eyes found mine. I looked away and asked, Do you come here often? Not as often as I would like. But I must confess that this was my favorite resting place of all that I've had. Where else have you been? Everywhere in this desert. Once in the open sand underneath the burning sun. Another time in the home of a dissatisfied man who made miserable those with whom he interacted. Are you aware of what happens around you when you're in your... My home? My prison? Somewhat. I can feel the energy of the people or places around me. I felt uncomfortable and lethargic in the desert sands, sad and miserable in the man's home. Here. His hands fanned around him. I was relaxed and as content as one could be living in a glass prison. His words hinted at the lingering sorrow I sensed was always with him, like smoke above a flame. Similar to how you can feel my thoughts, because I am your master? He nodded. I suppose, yes. But, Emel, you are no longer my master since you thought it wise to leave my vessel behind. He looked at me pointedly when he said this. My master is whomever has last released me from my vessel, and your father soon became my master again. Oh, a prick of disappointment. Then how did you feel my wishing for you earlier? I can feel the desires of any master I've had, though only you and your father are the masters I've had who still live. Even if I were across the desert, I could feel your want. I just don't have to respond to it. When do you have to respond? When a wish is spoken aloud. Masira hears it and will grant it. But if you think it, it does not have to be. I asked. My wish will be granted even if I am not your master. I have promised you wishes, so that means that I, Masira, will grant them if you speak them. So the power was in the words I said aloud. Satisfied with my limited understanding of his magic, I turned to my more pressing question. If you've been all over the desert... Are you familiar with it? With the trade routes? Trade routes? What do you care of caravans' paths? I told him about Rafal's map and proudly drew it for him in the sand, showing him the settlements I had already identified. Even more than Asher, he was amused by my fascination with the map. Too, he seemed almost impressed. Warmth slid down to my toes and I bit my lip to hide my gratified smile. He pointed to the paths and pursed his lips. But these all point to your settlement. I nodded, saying of course they did. My father had all the salt. Is it wrong? He was silent, staring sadly at the lines in the sand. No. I brushed the map away. Why do the legends of Jin say that you only grant three wishes? It is what I and maybe others. Other jinn? 
I blurted, wide-eyed. He shrugged and stared at the swept ground, gaze clouded. I assume there are others. By saying I only grant three wishes, I hope it will limit the time I spend with my master. So many are starved for power and wealth. A wicked people whose souls I cannot stand to be near. Sometimes I was lucky and Masira would separate me from my master with their wish. What do you mean? If their wish caused a big rift or sent them to a land far from where we were, my master would go and I would stay behind with the vessel. My mouth dropped open. I had never heard of that happening in the legends. They would lose you. He nodded, and I thought of how terrifying it would be to be sent far away without anyone or anything familiar, without even magic to return home. What about my father? Masira had not separated him from the jinni. He winced. Like all, I told him he had only three wishes. I assume he has already used them? He has. But then, why do you stay with him? Can't you leave? Aren't you free? Those questions are many, and their answers would take much time for me to tell. I am not free, no. I have already said that your father is a smart man. So many of the men before him assumed I was useless after the third wish. They endeavored to hide me, jealous of the next to find me and profit from their desires made real. So I would stay in my glass home, sometimes for several lifetimes, before another would find and free me. Your father did no such thing. After his third wish, he asked for a fourth. What did you do? I granted it. Seeing my bewilderment, he continued, You see, I offer people three wishes, but I am a slave to my master, and there is no end to what I do so long as my master desires it. But can't you walk away? Can't you leave? No. Sadness was heavy in his voice. I am bound to my home. If I am not contained within it, I can stray, but if my master calls me back, I must return. Why not freeze time in the village like you have done now and leave? Then he can't call you back. To live a life only to return to where it began when I grow tired? No. That would be impossible to endure. Even if my master is vile, he offers me change. I cannot endure a lifetime of sameness, of being alone. He looked from me to the village. With change, at least, there is hope. Yes, that was true. I marveled at the ease with which I spoke with the jinni. Despite his being a stranger, he felt safe. Perhaps it was his honesty, or maybe it was our shared condition. After all, he was a jinni, bound to my father as I was. Or perhaps it was that in his words, I saw that he was more human than magic. Whatever the reason, I gravitated toward that feeling, toward him. Our eyes met. You didn't tell me I had three? He looked away. I did not. How did you know who I was? You knew my name, that the king was my father. 
Salim smiled and slid onto the sand on the other side of the pool. I thought that was apparent the afternoon I saw you at the king's address. I fussed with the silk fabric covering my legs, chagrined that he acknowledged my rule-breaking with Firuz. It is often your father's desire that I am disguised as his guard or slave. I have known you since you were born. That surprised me. I wondered how often our paths had crossed before. Had I bribed him with salt he did not need as I slipped by, unaware he could give me so much more than escape from the palace for an afternoon? How have I never seen you before? You only see me if I allow it, as I allowed you to see me during the king's address. No one else could see you? None but you. Were you there today? During the courting? He nodded. I was again embarrassed by my coquettish behavior displayed so blatantly that he saw my father handle me like one of his treasures, that he saw Kadir reject me. Kadir. I sensed that you did not want him, just as I sensed you were looking for me. I redirected his attention. I remembered the suddenness with which he had dropped my hand and nodded. My stomach rumbled. What did my father eat today? Do you know? They were little red jewels. The pomegranate? The Ginny asked, baffled. Pomegranate? Yes, it's a fruit. I thought of coconuts and dates. It did not look like fruit to me. I will show you. The Ginny brightened with a wide smile. He walked around the small pond and knelt down at my side, the heat of him fully surrounding me. He held his hand before my eyes and asked, With your permission. It is more dramatic this way. Did I hear amusement? I nodded. Carefully, his hand covered my eyes. I leaned into him ever so slightly. They rested lightly on my face for only a moment before they were gone. The gentleness with which he touched me left me with a deep longing for more, like when Hadia massaged my shoulders and back. When I opened my eyes, I squealed and jumped up to my feet. Fruit, bright and shining, was piled high on tiered trays and platters. I scurried to them, the jinny trailing behind. Arab be praised, I whispered as I picked up a slice of something orange and wet. I set it back down and picked up a small, red fruit connected to its twin. My eyes roved over the plethora. I did not know where to begin. This is a pomegranate. What your father had, the Ginny said, coming up from behind me. He picked up a red, hard-sided fruit the size of his palm. I took it from him and peered closely. It appeared much different than what I had seen earlier. No. This is not it. The Ginny took it from me. From the gentle pressure of his fingertips, there came a soft crack, and he split the red fruit in two. My mouth dropped open when I saw that at its core were glistening rubies identical to the ones my father had. The Ginny showed me how to pry the gems from their soft, white beds. I smashed most of the juice-filled jewels as I retrieved one, Fingertips stained red, I placed the seed into my mouth. It burst with sweetness 
and leaked coolness onto my tongue. Do you like it? He asked me as I chewed. I crushed the tiny hard pit between my teeth and hunted for more of the turgid seeds. More than I love baths, I groaned. He let me try them all, taught me their names. I tasted wet orange slices, the soft flesh of apricot, and shining cherries with cores like rock. I stuffed myself with the sweet fruit, gleeful as he described the trees that bore them. It wasn't just pomegranates. All fruit glistened like jewels amongst the velvet green of the leaves. Where do they come from? I asked. My eyes were wide with childlike curiosity. Far away from here. Traders cannot make it this far with fruit still whole. It rots too quickly, but sometimes it is dried and preserved or turned into spirits, like wine. He pointed to a cluster of grapes. I sat back on the sand, leaning against a stone. I ate so much my belly ached with each breath. May I sit beside you? The Ginny asked. He had maintained a careful distance from me. You may, but don't forget I'm an Ahira, eh? You can't touch me, lest you've a plan to woo me. I raised my eyebrows at him, but when I saw the pain flash in his eyes, I stopped and mumbled, Of course, you don't have to ask. Seated beside me, he was still careful to keep his distance. Unsure if it was because of what I had said, I felt foolish for trying to joke with him. Through several breaths of silence, only the hiss of the leaves and songs of lucky birds could be heard. I have never done this before. Simply sitting with someone in a quiet place for no reason but to sit. It is, he hesitated, very nice. You and I are the same in that way. It is nice. No, I imagine you wouldn't have this luxury. Your father is careful with you and your sisters. But what of your friend? Firuz. Oh, is that his name? He rubbed the cuffs on his wrists. It is different with him. We sat in unhurried silence for a while more, our eyes staring at the city that lay fixed amongst the dunes. You have been very kind. Why? You are one who released me. I was disappointed by his answer, some small part of me hoping there was something more something that made me special. But you said I am no longer your master. True, but I've promised you wishes. The sun dipped toward the horizon, the shadows growing long. I felt drunk on the sugary fruit and the afternoon warmth, and my eyelids grew heavy. I see that you are tired. Would you stay a little longer? He said it so gently. There was a poorly concealed vulnerability that made my chest ache. Just that afternoon I had felt trapped with my father. The Ginny had taken me from that which oppressed me, and now I was sitting in the shade full of sweet fruit. I wanted to ask him then, can I have my freedom? But I did not want to destroy this peace, the ease of our time together. It was the closest to freedom I'd ever had. I didn't want it to disappear. And he had been so vulnerable, 
I did not want to remind him that he was a slave to grant wishes, just as I did not want to be reminded that I was an Ahira used to benefit my father. Truthfully, I see no reason to ever leave. I smiled at him as I lay down on the sand. I could smell him. Jasmine and desert dust laced through with the scent of something unfamiliar. But why do you want to stay? I said drowsily. When I am with you, I am not with the king. I have never spent time with someone who does not own my actions, who does not only care about my magic, and... He stopped talking. The word hung between us for some time, before the warm breeze blew it away. Today would not be the day I wished for my freedom. I must have fallen asleep, because when I stirred and opened my eyes, the sky had begun to purple. The orange of the fading sun was like fire against the few clouds. I will take you home now, the Jinny said from beside me. He had not moved. He stood fluidly. I followed, slow and dazed from sleep. I will return you to precisely where I took you. Move quickly to catch up with your sisters and you will not be missed. He held his arms open before him, as he had done earlier that day, and I stepped into them. The jinni wrapped his long arms around me and pulled me to him. Earlier, the intimate gesture had given me pause. It felt indecent, too close. This time, I understood its purpose. Just as I breathed in, the ground shifted from under me, and I felt the air change, noticed the light brighten. We were back in the stuffy confines of the palace. I kept my eyes closed, savoring what the jinni had just given me. When I opened my eyes, I would be drawn back to the life that was not my own. A bird shoved back in its cage. You should go. He dropped his arms and stepped away from me. Feeling chilled at his leaving, despite the warmth of the midday sun, I looked up at him. I found I already missed him, the freedom and the stories he told. I longed for his attention again and was horrified at the thought of returning to my life, returning to the monotonous days of listening to my sisters, weaving, gossiping, idling. When will I see you again? I hated how desperate I sounded. Perhaps I had made a mistake not to ask for my freedom. Next time. I must ask for my freedom the next time. Emel, you must go. Time moves once again. His words were stern. Will I see you soon? I tried again, prolonging the time I could stay in the hallway with him, pushing away my return home. I did not want to go back to my sisters and that life. Not yet. I hope. He started down the hall, the opposite direction I needed to go. I watched him and felt despair. Wait! He turned back to face me, his eyes questioning. I wish... I stumbled, unsure of how to speak what it was I desired. How did I say I didn't want to return to the life I knew waited for me? I wish to not yet return home. He looked pained at my words. He whispered, It will be as you wish. Then, with a warm wind that came from nowhere, the jinnee transformed into golden dust that dissipated into the air. He was gone.
I stared confused at the place where he had just been. Nothing had changed. A deep ache pressed against my gut. I had held freedom only briefly, yet the feeling of it had fastened itself to me like a metal cuff around my wrist, heavy, unforgettable, and drawing me back. I turned to where my sisters had disappeared days, moments before. I stared at the hallway around me. Why hadn't my wish worked? I began to walk back to the Zafif to find my sisters. An angry voice sounded behind me. Stop! I turned back, alarmed. It was a voice I knew. It was a voice I did not want to hear in that hallway, alone. Nasser stood at the entrance, the tent still swaying behind him. He was looking all around me, manic. Who was here with you? I stammered. No one. Still, he looked around as if someone could be hiding in the folds of fabric. Then his iron gaze settled on me. You are not to be out by yourself, he hissed. How dare you defy the king's rule? He turned and shouted through the walls to the soldiers that waited on the other side. Take this Ahira to the king! Two guards burst into the hallway behind Nasser and approached me so quickly, I had no time to respond before their hands were clasped to my arms and they were roughly dragging me back toward the Salt King. Part Two Tathalik Sacrifice Adala, in response to your question, remember it is a waste for man to pray to Masira. There cannot be understanding between a worshipper and Masira as there can be with her sons, who are much closer to us. She listens to none but herself, does only what she desires. But if you must petition, remember that she will hear sacrifice, have you heard the salt chaser's idiom, douse a flame with salt? Nasser, perhaps not. I know your father keeps you sheltered from desert woes, but it means that one must give something he needs before she might listen. Do not be discouraged. You are learning quickly. Continue to study the litap, and your ability to reach Masira will grow. Zahar Found parchment detailing discussions of the Litab al Mur. Chapter 8 She was out by herself, Nasser said excitedly as the king blundered into his throne, two of his wives trailing like obedient dogs. Trump! The salt king's voice was honed with fury as he looked at me. First, you reject Kadir. And now you're caught trying to go off on your own? What would cause you to be so bold? The light sparkled cheerily through the tanzanite gems on my father's slippers as I stared at them. At the edge of my vision, heaps of salt sat around us in the room, none still tarnished with blood. Did my father throw out the spoiled salt? Or did he wish the blood away? My thoughts strayed to the jinni. Where had he gone? You were distracted with Kadir, he said. He complained that your mind was elsewhere, that you spurned him, seeking someone else. He stood, nudging one of his wives aside with his foot, and walked toward me. 
And now you're found by yourself. Were you trying to run away? Or perhaps you are trying to find those traitorous men to flee with. With a delicate cough, Nasser stepped into my father's line of sight. We know that the Altamarug are no longer an issue. Your soldiers took care of all that remained. It would be impossible for Emel to flee to them. More likely, she goes to another man. The king gave Nasser a sidelong glance before he grabbed my face, crushing my cheeks between his fingers. He jerked my head up so my black eyes met his. An icy terror washed over me, and every breath burned. He was furious. Choose your words wisely, Emel, for I will only grant you a few. He released his hold on my face, but continued to stand before me, the jagged stones on my bodice catching on his tunic. I was with my sisters. I had fallen behind. I paused, trying to slow my breath, trying to find an explanation. The vizier found me as I was catching up. Lies! Nasser erupted from beside the king. I cringed. I heard you with a man. And where was the trailing guard? He turned to his king, waving his hand at me. The guard would have been with her unless she hid and evaded him. Or maybe he was the very person she sought. The king nodded in agreement. There is something amiss, Emel. What or who is it you find so distracting? What could you value more than your family? My king, there is no one. A swift, unyielding slap wrenched my head to the side. The hands on my arms tightened their grip, preventing me from falling. My eyes watered and my chest heaved as a sharp pain erupted at my temple. My mind whirled. The sequence of events was incomprehensible. The happiness I felt in the oasis was like a dream, a blurry memory too good to have been real. Sons, I'd been a fool not to wish for my freedom then. I could be gone from here. Wetness trickled down my cheek. Blood. The skin on my face torn by my father's ring. Was my father going to kill me? I was not ready to die. I wanted some sort of real life before I was given to Masira. I thought of the Djinni again. I dared not look around for him, the echo of my father's accusations ringing in my ears. You lying whore! He spat. There has been talk of an Ahira leaving her quarters, of bribery and consorting with commoners. You will be made an example of to your sisters. If there is one among you who has dared to disobey me, it ends now. The king, his chest rising and falling with the efforts of his diatribe, turned back toward Nasser. Fetch the rest of them. His words were a lash, and each threat left behind shining, crimson terror. Sycophantic glee smothered Nasser's face. My king? Another guard, followed closely by Sabra, barreled into the throne room. Everything disappeared, the throbbing pain at my temple, the raging king who paced in front of his throne, the wives who watched with secret smiles, Nasser's delight. When I saw Sabra... There was no good reason that she was seeking an audience with her father. 
What now? The king collapsed onto his throne in a mound of flesh. The Ehida has an urgent message for you, the guard said, his eyes on the ground. Sabra moved to stand in front of the throne at my side. The king's wives, so much younger than my mother, were draped drunkenly at his feet. They made an apparent effort, as evidenced by the creases in their brows, to observe the scene unfurling before them, to remember all so they could tell the other wives, with twisted pleasure, of the foul deeds being done by another's daughters. Sabra hesitated when she saw me. What is the message? The king barked. I... Forgive me. I can see that it is not a good time. I beg your forgiveness, my king. I will leave. Forgive me. She said her words in a hurry and fell to her knees in a deep bow, continuing to mumble for forgiveness. Stop your groveling and spit it out. I came to tell you that Emel was missing. She turned toward me. My mouth dropped open and I shook my head, imperceptible to all but Sabra. The softness of her face hardened and she turned back to our father. I can see that she was here all this time. But you should know that this is not the first time she's been gone. It took all of my strength to keep me on my feet. How could she? The king was struck silent by the scene before him, amusement clouding his anger. I could see his struggle. He had wanted to punish me for my possible disobedience for pure fun. However... The revelation that I had actually broken his rules was beyond comprehension. His plodding, alcohol-laden brain could not keep up. His glassy eyes moved from me to Sabra and back again. I quaked inside. I am finished with these squabbling cows. He stood, swaying slightly. This is a family matter. The king turned to the numerous servants who stood on the perimeter of the tent, fanning the room or carrying trays of untouched food and drink. Leave us. A disobedient daughter was an embarrassment to the king. Before, I had been only a disappointment. Now, I was shameful, too. The servants shuffled out of the tent, but surely most stopped and waited, hidden behind tent walls, to listen to the spectacle ready to spread word about what had happened. I thought of the Ginny again. Was he amongst them? Could he not help me? Or did I have to wish for it first? We waited in silence while the king sipped his drink, my mind spinning with impossible solutions. Soon, my sisters filed in with Nasser, most wearing their bright fustans and silk slippers, some still wearing bejeweled Ahira attire. They had not even donned robes. Nasser must have extracted them from the Zafif. I saw their dread as their gazes darted between Sabra and I. Nasser, the king said tiredly. Retrieve my whip. The vizier scurried from the tent and was back within moments, carrying the iron-handled weapon, a long leather strap wrapped around it. In his other hand was coiled rope. I closed my eyes and prayed. Arab, show my father that I see how I've erred. Daughters, I have brought you here to remind you of your role in my palace. 
He began as he took the whip and rope from Nasser. In her vanity, Emel has demonstrated blatant disregard for my rule. She has disrespected me, her mother, and all of you. She cares not for my generosity, the bed I provide, the food I give, the shelter I offer. Therefore, for her punishment, he paused and took a drink, she will be imprisoned for one complete cycle of the moon, and she will receive thirty lashes. My sisters gasped, my breath caught. For the king to be willing to scar one of his ahiran, to ruin my future with a suitor by marks of disobedience, and thirty times. There would be no future with a Mohammed now. None would choose a marked wife. The sand threatened to swallow me whole as my knees weakened, desperate to collapse. Bring her to me, the salt king commanded, the guards holding me. He held out the rope. Bind her. Desperate, I shoved my elbow into the chest of one of the guards while my other hand pushed at the face of the second. A heavy blow landed against the side of my head. Black bloomed in my vision, and pain radiated down my neck and spine. I fell onto the ground. I was hoisted upright, my hands and feet bound. The coarse fibers splintered against my skin as the rope was tightened. Please, Ahirab, please. I begged, closing my eyes. I will burn in the desert for you. I will never step into the shade again. My father stepped slowly behind me, making no sound save the whisper of his sarwal with each step. The afternoon sun burned into the tent. Sweat dripped down my neck and fell into the beaded ivory of my bodice. Arab, guide my father, save me from this. I prayed and prayed, repeating the entreaties over and over, until it began. The first sharp slice of the whip fell onto the skin between my neck and shoulder, tender flesh deeply cut by the leather strap. I cried out at the sharp sting, tears filling my eyes. I wanted to be strong, to be silent, but I fell to my knees and I cried. One, said the king. I had been abandoned by my god, so I turned back to the jinni. Please, I thought, please come, help me, please. I thought the words so fiercely I almost spoke them aloud. He had to hear my pleas. I wish for safety, Salim. I wish for you to save me. I wish to be away from here. I wish to be in the oasis. I wish to be in my bed. I wish to start today again, to make different decisions. I wished for every possible thing as the whip carved down my back over and over again. My eyes squeezed shut as I bent forward on my knees, back exposed and stretched. I fell to my side, but the guards pushed me up again. Blood dripped from my back to my neck, my face tight in agony. I focused all of my attention on what I wanted, needed, 
I hoped it would be enough to call the attention of the Jinni. He did not come. The king fatigued midway through, the space between the lashes longer, the bites less sharp. He complained of cramping in his shoulder, his aching neck. My sisters suffered, too, as they watched me crumple. Many cried as they listened to the king's count. Some jumped in surprise with each snap of the lash, while others stood silently and trembled. Maybe some thought sadly of the scars that would be left on my beautiful skin, while others thanked Arab secretly for my punishment. Perhaps now they would have a better chance with the next suitor. I knew they imagined themselves in my place, but found relief that it would never be. They were not such fools to break rules as their willful sister did. I know they felt shame for those private thoughts. They would not soon forget the depraved feeling of being a voyeur to their sister's abuse, while they thought idly of the wedding bed and my bad behavior. I knew all of this because I would have thought the same. I bit my lip as I waited for each lash, my teeth cutting into my skin with each crack of the whip. My thoughts rambled in a thick fog of delirium, and I thought of Asher's burial, how the king's guards had dragged the bodies of the dead into the desert and thrown them in two piles. Mateen's men, they lit to flame. They burned like the wounds on my back. The smell of scorched flesh had hung thick over the settlement for the rest of the day. Asher's robes were unbelievably bright that day. How could a color be so vivid when there was no life to live in it? Soon, a vulture had circled overhead. Then, another and another. They grew in numbers, just like the lashes. The first vulture dove and landed on Asher. The others followed. They devoured him, devoured all of the king's men, piece by piece. Masira's feast just as I felt to be a feast for Masira now. The king's men sang the melancholy song of the committal of the sky when the birds began, one after another, tearing the flesh from the earth and carrying it into the heavens. No one was singing for me now. That day, I had cried first with relief and then in sadness, because, oh, how I wished to follow him there, but now, I was Asher, each lash a bird's beak ripping my flesh. Then, I was a bird flying low over a village being pelted by sharp rocks. I was goat with my limbs tied to a spit, the greedy flames licking my spine. I was a cloud in the sky, the strike of lightning singeing my fleece. The king declared the thirtieth lash with enervated triumph. He barked at my sisters about the lesson they had learned that afternoon. On my side, I shivered with pain. The air was like cold fire on my flayed back. Sabra was still beside my horrified sisters. Her eyes met mine briefly. I saw no remorse, but she had paled. The king walked near and I flinched, curling into myself, my lashed skin shrieking in agony at the movement. His tunic was tucked behind the articles at his belt, and that was when I saw it. The glass vessel. I squeezed my eyes closed and curled my hands into tight fists. 
I wanted to scream, to beat the floor in my frustration. Within the vessel, golden smoke swirled in a frenzy. The jinni was locked in his gilded home, blind to the world around him. It brings me pain that I must punish your sister so. The king continued his self-indulgent speech, of which I heard little. The forged compassion might have repulsed me, but I was so tired. I trust this has been a lesson to you all. Now, he continued, your lesson is not through. My eyes shot open. A gust of horror swept through me like a storm. I choked on it, a wet breath rattling in my chest as I inhaled. My sister's expressions mirrored mine. What else could the king have for me? Even Sabra looked appalled. I wanted to scramble up to her and claw her face, wanted to scream at her for her betrayal. But the energy was not there, nor the spirit. Emel has faced the beginning of her punishment for her disobedience, and it will continue in the prison. But... The king stepped slowly toward the eldest, Ahira. Sabra, you have not yet faced yours. Nasser, please. The king held out his bloodied weapon to his vizier, who stepped forward to take the whip. Sabra, you will receive ten lashes for being a rat. Wow, the situation has gone from bad to worse, and now, more than ever, Amel is trapped. In the next episode, see how she endures her imprisonment. Perhaps it won't be as bad as she suspects. Stay tuned. And don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you so much. Camcat Unwrapped also offers other Camcat books as podcasts. Check out our interviews with authors, editors, and other bookworms in our background episodes where we unwrap exclusive content relating to our books. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet.